0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. I'm really excited, as this is part two of our special podcast mini-series where I interviewed two Boston tech legends. The first being Paul English, who is best known as the co-founder and CTO of Kayak. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, make sure you do. There's so much great info in there. But today's interview features Mike Volpe, who, as most of you already know, was the chief marketing officer and an early employee at HubSpot, and he was recently the CMO of Cyber Reason. So why is this a podcast mini-series? Well, they're both together now at Lola.com, a disruptive online travel service which is focused on servicing the needs of business travelers. They recently announced the addition of Mike as the company's CEO, and Paul moved to the role of CTO. I went over to their offices to interview both of them shortly after this announcement was made to bring you these exclusive interviews for our podcast. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Mike's background and his family's history of success in the tech industry, the story of HubSpot where we talk a lot about the early days of the company, how they built a world-class culture, experimental marketing and what it was like going public, his current role as CEO of Lola.com and the future outlook of the company, his thoughts on the Boston tech scene and the angel investment community, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Today's podcast is sponsored by Yesware, an inbox productivity platform that transforms the way you send emails. With features such as campaigns, email tracking, and templates, Yesware removes barriers to productivity and empowers teams to make smarter decisions faster. Here's some fun facts about Yesware. They are Boston born and bred with a downtown office that has a nap room, yoga studio, and even their own Irish pub. They have an award-winning product and culture and have been recognized as a Boston Globe top place to work. They're proud to have reached a 50-50 gender ratio across their team as of this summer, and they also just raised $15 million in additional funding. The company has big plans to put those resources into further developing their product and people, so as you might have guessed, they're hiring. Be sure to check out yesware.com backslash company for more info on their culture and job openings. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Mike. Mike, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. This is going to be fun. Well, congratulations on the recent news. You're CEO now of Lola. Yeah. Was that part of your plan was to, you know...
1: Yeah. 20 years ago, I said, this guy who <laughs> right. hasn't started a travel business yet is going to start a travel business. And then he'll start another one, and then I'm going to be CEO of that one. Yeah. That, that was the master Able plan. Was, no. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where your career, you have some general idea where you want to go, mm-hmm. um, and you always want to be taking on new challenges, and... Um, You sort of point yourself in the right direction when the right opportunities come across then you gotta take advantage of them so um, yeah it was it was no preset plan on exactly when and how to become CEO but um, uh, something you know in the past probably four or five years I had started to think a lot more about doing sure and uh, when this opportunity came about I've known Paul for actually a number of years now um, and when he reached out and and wanted to chat uh, a little bit more about about me joining Lola um, It was just such a great opportunity. It was really um, something I had to just
0: take advantage of. Yeah. We'll we'll talk a lot more about Lola in a bit. But let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, so I grew up um, south of Boston uh, in a town called Canton. Mm -hmm. Um, So just outside the city. Um, Typical kind of Boston, suburban upbringing. Um, uh, Yeah, uh, like, you know, relatively normal. Um, Yeah.
0: Now, one thing that I've always, uh, like, I've been fortunate to... um, be part of the Boston Tech scene for a long time. And uh, when I was just starting my career in recruiting, I would stalk venture capitalists just trying to get to know the VCs who were investing in portfolio companies, thinking that that could be a good segue for my business. So I would uh, go to a lot of panel discussions and there was this gentleman named Lou Volpe that was on uh, panels for Kodiak Ventures. And I put two and two at one point together, like, wait, this is Mike Volpe's dad. And then Lou Vo- uh, Drew Volpe is your brother? So there's this history of success in the in the Boston tech scene with your uh, your family.
1: Yeah, we never we don't really talk about it that way, um, uh, sort of like linking everyone. But yeah, uh, my dad was uh, had operational roles at a few um, companies that were uh, worked out pretty well in Boston, uh, from Parametric Technology, and you know, PTC, mm-hmm. to uh, Geotel, and then ArrowPoint after that. Uh, and after all that operational experience, uh, he did the VC thing for a little while. Uh, and then my brother, uh, who got all the brains in the family, he's uh, you know, a <laughs> comp-sci grad, um, uh, Harvard comp-sci. Um, he was at NDECA for a long time and um, managed a, a decent portion of that engineering organization and a couple other startups after that, uh, sort of co-founder and CTO of, um, of Locately, uh, which was a mass challenge uh, company um, that ended up uh, growing th- and then being acquired. Uh, and now he's doing a VC firm as well at uh, First Star Ventures. So, yeah, there's, a, there's I don't know, something in the water in our house or something uh, that leads us all to sort of some different roles in the tech world.
0: Now, you went off to uh, Bowdoin and, you know, liberal arts, right? And you played football there. Yeah. So what, um, you know, what were you thinking when you're entering school and what, what was the plan to for what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, I think like
1: most uh, kids when you first go away to college, uh, I didn't really necessarily have a grand plan. Yeah. I knew I wanted to do something in business. I had taken an economics class my senior year in high school, um, and I'd always sort of been fascinated by the business world, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I think liberal arts was a great foundation to learn a lot about the world, become a better writer and communicator, and all those sort of like softer skills. I always feel like um, – uh, for people that go to, and get a business degree in undergrad, unless you really know that you want to get like a job specifically in finance or accounting or something like that, um, having a broader based education might be the right thing to do and then maybe go back and get an MBA or something like that a few years later. So in any event for me, the, the well-rounded kind of liberal arts thing um, paid off pretty well. Um, and then, you know, we weren't talking about this in the, in the prep, but I think my first job after college was in investment banking. Um, and I, I keep coming back to that, especially in this sort of CMO to CEO transition where um having a foundation in like general business, either from like management consulting or from investment banking, I think is really valuable. Um and I've I, something that's funny, it's like 20 years later I'm still drawing on that experience of how much is a company worth, like how to read and understand financial statements. I mean, I just had, you know, a CEO, I just had an hour-long meeting with our head of finance. Um and you know we're talking about you know company valuations and the cap table and all sorts of things like that and that was stuff that um again i learned a lot about that in that first job out of college in investment banking so it's 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 funny that like the paths
0: that your career kind of takes and then you did go to b school so you went to sloan
1: i did yeah so i spent four years in san francisco doing investment banking for the tech industry and then i worked at a couple startups uh, none of which worked out um so it was another good experience of like seeing what causes companies to fail uh, yeah, and then I moved back and went to MIT for business school, uh, which I always say is, way I clarify for people, that is that the stupid part of MIT is, is the business school. It's, it's still a smart business school, but like you know, right. it, it, we are not on par with the other people on campus there uh, in terms of smarts. Maybe some other things we're good at, but, uh, but not the smarts part. So what did you do after Sloan? Uh, So I joined a company called SolidWorks, uh, which is another one of the sort of Massachusetts kind of tech success stories. Uh, It was uh, started by a few folks who then grew it, sold it to Dassault Systems, Um, you know, probably, unfortunately, like many mass success stories as well, maybe sold it a little bit early. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, uh, I think it was, you know, it was, I think, a $300 million acquisition. Back in the days when, you know, you remember $300 million was actually That's like huge. a lot of money. Yeah. That was like a bit like a, Massive. no one ever did billion dollar deals back then. That yeah. was $300 million was like a huge deal. That would be like a $2 billion deal today, right? right. Um, so it was a great deal. And um, and I worked there for uh, almost four years, about three and a half years. Um, and I actually worked for uh, another guy who's now running marketing at Desktop Metal, a guy named Ilya Merman, mm-hmm. who had also gone to Sloan. Uh, and he hired me first as an MBA intern. And then I worked for him for a while. Um, and then worked for another guy, uh, Reiner Gallick, who uh, ran marketing at SolidWorks. And then he was, uh, I think, like president, COO at Perfecto Mobile. And now he's like on multiple boards. He's sort of like a professional board member. So I, through that first job, I made a, a bunch of really interesting connections through those, you know, two different bosses I had, the two different CMOs that I worked for. Mm-hmm. And then I'm still tight with um, John Herstic, John McElaney, like the guys who, you know, had founded and built. And at the time, John Herstic was CEO of SolidWorks. They've gone on and they've started Onshape, uh, which I'm I'm an advisor to. So they're trying to do basically SolidWorks, but in the cloud. Um, uh, And so, you know, even that first job at a business school, like I made a lot of connections. And SolidWorks uh, at the time was one of the big sort of success stories, uh, you know, for tech in Boston.
0: And what was the experience that you gained there that was the formation of your marketing career? I
1: would say so. I had done you know a little bit of marketing beforehand, but I think um, one of the big things I learned. Probably two things. So a lot of things on like marketing, how to do marketing and things like that. I learned a lot about channel because they sold only through channel partners. So there was no direct selling happening there. But I think the two big things I learned was Number one of just like what a well-run and well-managed company looks like. I hadn't had that experience because I'd done investment banking where they generate a ton of money. But like I don't think anyone would say investment bankers are good at managing people um, (laughs) or running a good organization. Mm -hmm. And then I worked at a few failed startups. This is the first time I saw a company growing, you know. 50% 50% year-on-year, year, generating cash that like had good metrics, well-run management meetings, well-run company town hall meetings. Um, I just got to see a good management team operate well. And I, I learned a ton from John Herstic and John McAlaney. Um, especially as you know as well as everybody else there Uh, so that was the one big thing I learned and the second thing was I had managed you know one or two people beforehand but that was the first job where I got to manage a much larger team Mm -hmm. Um, I think the team grew to about 15 people or so and managing you know 15 a team of 15 is very different than one or two and so that was my first real sort of like management experience of of growing and building a team managing a team uh, managing people in and out of that team and things like that and um, Uh, And that was another really, really big thing
0: I learned that ended up being really useful later. And what part of the marketing organization did you own at SolidWorks?
1: Yeah. So I had all of marketing except for product marketing and except for our um, technology partner program. Mm -hmm. So we had like companies that had integrations with SolidWorks. I didn't manage that whole program and I didn't manage uh, product marketing, uh, which, you know, as a product, a 3D CAD product that's made for mechanical engineers. that would have been really hard to do as a non mechanical engineer, right. uh, especially somebody you know more junior, which I was at the time. So um, yeah, so I, I, it was a giant opportunity. They definitely um, took a little bit of a leap of faith uh, and had you know get, gave me probably more um, uh, responsibility than necessarily deserved at the time. Um, but uh, you know it was it was an educated risk because it worked out really well. We, we had some great results there. We grew revenue by a ton, uh, grew demand generation by a ton. It was a lot of fun. And
0: at what point did you decide? Hey, I need to do something next. And was that, were you thinking a startup? And then how'd you get connected with Brian uh, and Darmash at, at HubSpot? Yeah. So
1: I, ha- I had kind of gotten the startup bug um, back in San Francisco and I'd worked at a couple of startups. Again, they, you know, they didn't work out and they don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I always knew I wanted to go back and do the more, entre- more entrepreneurial thing mm-hmm. But I wanted to work at a company that was well-run and well-managed first and learn from them. So after about three and a half years, I had had that opportunity. The other thing that happened is, you know, SolidWorks had been sold to Dassault Systems, which is a very large French company. And uh, just culturally, the way they ran the company was very different than how SolidWorks had traditionally been run, which is very fast-paced and entrepreneurial. Um, And there were just a bunch of things like strategically that were starting to happen Uh, That I just felt like uh, didn't necessarily make it the best place for me to continue to hang out Mm -hmm. Uh, And I you know put in a bunch of time there too and accomplish some great things. So I felt like it was around the right time and um, I talked to a ton. I mean tons like more than 50. I had a spreadsheet tracking them all startups in Boston um, Trying to find an awesome marketing job um, at a company that I thought had a lot of promise that would go somewhere and, uh, and I kind of struck out, in you know, a combination of I, there were companies that I just didn't, you know, wasn't interested in working for. And then there were a bunch of people that weren't interested in hiring me. <laughs> um, and so the combination of those two sort of led me down to thinking, like, maybe I should start a company. Right. And it's funny, it wasn't a direct connection to Brian Nermesh. It was actually to Mark Roberge, uh, who ran sales at HubSpot for, you know, the first six, seven years uh, and is now um, a professor at HBS uh, and, you know, board member and sales consultant. He wrote the book, uh, Sales Acceleration Formula. Um, and so I had met Mark through like an MIT alumni thing. Um, and so I called him up, and I remember he was actually driving in his car with his family to Connecticut. Um, and like his whole family was like asleep in the car. And so we took the call, and I was like, hey, man, uh, you know, um, uh, well, you want you want the whole story. I'll give the whole story. So the whole story is he was actually running a company at the time. He okay. was the CEO of a company, and he was trying to recruit me to run marketing for him. Mm-hmm. I didn't love what he was doing. It was sort of like a it was like a uh, anyway. I, I, just, I, I didn't love his business, and um, but you know we were chatting, and we were friends, and I was offering you know, looking for some advice, and I, I told him I was like, look, I can't find a great startup to work for. I think I just need to start a company. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, that's interesting. Like, what would you want to do? And I was like, well. We've been doing all this new marketing stuff at SolidWorks. You know, we started doing a bunch of SEO and like pay-per-click and I've got email and then I've got my website and like, but like all the software doesn't work well together. And I had talked to like Eloqua and Omniture and all these like big marketing systems from back then. I mean, this is like, you know, 2004, 2005 and none of them really solved all the problems that I had. And I was like, there's got to be some way to like make better marketing software that Works in the new way that you should be doing marketing today. You know, leverages SEO. You know, we had started a company blog in like 2004 at SolidWorks, which is very early for company blogging, and you um, know, we we're just doing all that kind of stuff, not knowing necessarily what to call it. But I was like, we're doing all this new web marketing stuff, and we don't have good tools to do it all. Maybe I just need to find some developers and like start to build something. And Mark kind of like paused, and he's like, you know, he's like, there's a couple guys I've been doing one day a week sales consulting for them. On the side that are kind of doing something like this, mm-hmm. and of course I was like, oh, like that's too bad. Like <laughs> they're probably way ahead of me. Like can't start that company. need right. a new, new idea. Like whatever. And he's like, well, he's like, actually, the funny thing is, it's basically just the two of them, and they have like one developer. <laughs> they don't have anybody doing marketing. I was like, how are they starting a marketing software company without somebody doing marketing? Right. Um, and then he was like, you know, do you want me to introduce you to Brian and Armesh? And so I was like, yeah, cool. I go to meet Brian and Armesh, and it was at the time. If you remember, they were in the CIC, and way back around then, the CIC had had a fire, and so they were relocated into one Memorial Drive before Microsoft moved in and made it nice. And it was like a really terrible office. There was like no extra space because all these CIC companies have been crammed in there. It was like the like like uh, refugee camp of Boston startup land for people that were around back then. And I met Brian in like the elevator um, lobby. And we we're both sitting on like overturned trash cans. Right. Like literally, this is my first like interview at HubSpot. Yeah. And after that, um, anyway, I got to know them both. I thought they were interesting, onto a good idea, uh, and something that I could easily get very passionate about. And so, yeah, I joined up. Um, and then the funny thing is, then Mark ended up sort of, um, you know, passing off his startup to other leadership. And then he joined full time. And then,
0: uh, you know, we were sort of off off to the races from there. So HubSpot created this category of inbound marketing, which you think about how big of an industry that is now. Like, What was that like in the early days being an evangelist of this new concept of inbound marketing?
1: So it felt like you walked into Harvard Square with a milk crate and put the milk crate down on the ground and stood up on top of the milk crate and started giving a sermon of inbound marketing. And everyone's just walking by not paying attention to you, thinking you're a crazy person. Uh, That's literally how it feels like in the early days when you're trying to build a movement like this. But eventually, um, a person or two stops and starts listening to you. And then they start, you know, clapping and being like, oh, yeah, like, right on. Like, you got this. You're like You're totally right about that. And then they start telling a couple of their friends. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you're running an inbound conference, which, you know, we built while I was there to, to 15,000 people, like, coming into Boston to, like, hang out and hear you talk on your milk crate, right? The milk crate With gets a little, the milk speakers. crate gets a little fancier yeah. and like there's more lights and flash and whatever. But like at the core, it's like very much the same, but you know, so the I, definitely the advice to all the startup founders out there is like, it, it feels like nobody's paying attention. No one cares in the very beginning. Um, you just need to look for those subtle signs of if like four or five, 10 people start to care, then that's something. Mm-hmm. Don't expect it to be like tons of people right away.
0: And HubSpot was known, especially even in the early days for its culture. Um, Like I, so as, you know, background as a recruiter, there was a stretch of time where I would talk to, you know, I would just ask the question, like, so, you know, what companies are you finding interesting out there? (laughs) And every single person would say HubSpot. And at the time I'm like, do you know what HubSpot does? And they're like, nope, Nope, no idea. Just sounds cool. Sounds cool. Great people. Yeah. And they do these parody videos and it looks super fun. So how did you build that culture and, you know, get these people uh, that were believers in this, this mission?
1: Um, I think there's, I mean, that alone could be like three hours worth of material, but I I
0: think that the shorter answer is a
1: couple of things. One is um, because HubSpot at its core was a marketing software company, um, the idea of marketing and being good at marketing and marketing your company um, was far broader than just the marketing team. So I think we were really fortunate that Everyone in the company knew something about marketing wanted to help participate in marketing and part of that was actually marketing the company and what a wonderful place to work it was mm-hmm. and so um that helped a lot. So rather than having a marketing team of 10 when we had 100 employees, we had a marketing team of 100 because everyone was active in the community and very passionate about what they're doing and wanted to share that with their friends and share it on social media and things like that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, we did as a management team actually do a lot of thinking about culture and wanted that, you know, before it was in fashion to make culture part of your your sort of strategy and part of your competitive advantage. We We did that and wanted to do that at HubSpot. And so um, we spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what are the perks? We were one of the very, very, very early companies to do the unlimited vacation thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, many companies do that now. we were very early on that. Um, and there's lots of other things that we did. You know, we published about our culture, which we weren't, again, not the first company to do. You know, Netflix is probably the first company to public, publicly pul- publish their culture deck. Um, but we did that relatively early on and it was just like a lot of those things really coming together and so i think it was it was partly about having making house a great place to work with a great culture but it was also about just marketing it and shouting it louder than a lot of other people and the combination of those two things were why because you can have this great product but if no one's heard about it then no one's heard about it right so i think what you were experiencing was not only was it a great culture and place that people wanted to work but we also talked about it so much
0: that lots of people had heard about it and it became like the place to work and as a marketing company, you were doing things incredibly uh, advanced, very common now. But the use of video, like I remember watching you live uh, for HubSpot TV, and you would yeah, you I had a
1: video podcast before that was like cool, yeah. right? Now it's like everyone's like, oh, video is so hot, right, and you see, you know, now. oh, we can do video on LinkedIn, all yeah. these things, or whatever. And it's like I, we were doing video and live streaming video back when it was like barely technically possible to do that. Yeah, no, I did. I did over two hundred episodes of a video podcast uh, with my fantastic uh, co-host Karen Rubin. Right. Um, And yeah, we, and we used to turn into a Friday event. We'd actually have people, we'd have a live Live studio studio audience. audience. Yeah, exactly. So people would come in, you know, summer Fridays would be like 15 people, Um, you know, (laughs) in the, in the winter, if maybe we had a a fun, you know, famous guest, we might get a hundred. But then, you know, the numbers kind of varied. Uh, But yeah, yeah, no, we were, we did a lot of stuff like that. I think, I think the fun part about doing marketing, At a marketing software company is marketing is intrinsically valued and there's a huge uh, willingness to take a lot of risks and try new things because we had to be cutting edge we had to be the ones as part of the whole branded hubspot that was continuously writing and creating that new marketing playbook Mm -hmm. Uh, and using that as part of, like, our overall brand, right? And And so we had to be trying these. Even if they didn't work, we'd then tell hey, we did 20 episodes of video podcasts. It didn't work. Here's some of the reasons why. And that would become a great blog article and also become part of our brand. So it it was was an exceptionally fun place to be able to do marketing, especially in the early days when we were just really trying to, like, create and invent that whole
0: sort of new marketing playbook. And were, were you, like, just brainstorming together as a team? Like, hey, let's do a parody video on Alanis Morissette. And
1: like, like, yeah, so the, so the original inbound marketing, like you ought to know inbound marketing, which is a parody of the Alanis Morissette song. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I I think Hubspot actually took that down off of YouTube. No, it's still there. Is it still there? I, it still it, there? You, I, I think you it saw. It, there's like a bootleg version. Maybe they brought Maybe. it back up. It I think be. there's like a bootleg. But anyway, it is it is somewhere in the bowels of YouTube. It is still accessible. In any event, I um so Rebecca Corliss. I um, in the early days of Twitter, there were tons of marketers on Twitter, so it's a great place to do recruiting. Mm-hmm. She had been at a PR firm, she left, uh, and she was just doing at the time like some volunteer work for a um, a nonprofit, and she started doing this interesting thing where. She did an auction on Twitter and she would write a song about you and then record a video of her singing that song if you made a donation to this nonprofit. And so somebody – I missed the deadline to bid on it and whatever. And somebody paid her like you know 70 bucks or something like that donation and she put together like a one-minute song. And I was like, okay, here you have somebody who can play the guitar, has a wonderful singing voice – um, and has the creativity and like the marketing genius to cor- come up with this new thing that took her 20 minutes and you know raised 70 bucks to this nonprofit like really quickly I was like wow um, and so I reached out to her on Twitter and I brought her in the office and I was like hey I was like do you know how to like do you know video music all that stuff we just talked for a few minutes I was like okay I was like I want to pay you to make a music video about HubSpot and she was like you're going to pay me to do that? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to pay you to that. She's like, great. Like, when do we start? And I was like, next week. So, um, and this is bad. I mean, the video, it's terrible quality. Um, she perfect. was really good. Which back then, especially, yeah. like, now it's a little different. But of course, you know, it's like we, we couldn't even use like a phone back then to record it because it wasn't good enough quality and things like that. So we had to buy like an actual video camera. It's just like there were a bunch of things about it that were sort of interesting. But yeah, we had a bunch of friends. We went in the office on a Saturday and just recorded this thing. And um The interesting thing about it is, so it got got over 100,000 views relatively quickly, uh, which back then was like a lot more than like the equivalent numbers now. And um, we saw, so at the end of the video, the call to action was someone going to Google and typing in inbound marketing and then clicking search and then the video ends. Mm -hmm. We saw a gigantic, like a 10x uptick in the number of people going to Google and searching on inbound marketing. So it, it was sort of this interesting, like it actually had an effect on the business because it led to more searches on the term inbound marketing. Then everyone is going to that page. And by the way, back then HubSpot owned nine of the 10 results on the, on the first page of Google for inbound marketing. And like they're learning about it. They're connecting that concept back to HubSpot. It's showing Google that that's like a rising search term and all the traffic is coming to us. And like there was like a lot of like things that came out of that video that was, you know, one of the
0: early things that kind of worked well for us. Nope inbound the conference is massive now right that's yeah enormous. i think it's like
1: almost twenty thousand people or something like that yeah uh
0: so what was the original plan there like okay uh <laughs> we're just, we've got this movement going let's yeah. start a conference maybe we'll get a few people to talk about inbound marketing yeah so this
1: is so ellie merman who now runs crayon uh, marketing at crayon she's cmo there um she was my first marketing hire because uh, she had actually interned uh for my team at solidworks and they didn't they didn't decide to hire her out of college. I was like, I'm going to hire you. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she and I were just talking about all these different ideas and things like that. And, and we had been really successful with like blog content and webinars and things like that. And we said, you know what? Like, let's let's just start a conference about inbound marketing and like see what happens. And we got 350 people there the first year. This was back in, I think, 2008. Um, And from there, it just, it grew. We sort of, we had some partnerships around it. So then we had rebranded the event a couple times or whatever. But yeah, since 2008 until, you know, I think we got it up to 15,000 people in 2014, something like that. Um, So yeah, I mean, just a ton of growth there. But no, there was no, I mean, no original plan there. The first one was just like, let's do something and see how it goes. And we got way more traction than we expected. And then we said, okay, well... Dreamforce is really big. Can we grow faster than Dreamforce? And you know, if you look at our growth in the first for inbound for the first like four, five, six years, we were growing faster than than Dreamforce in their first you know equivalent amount of time. So we um, we had we had a really really good go of it um, for a long time there, and, and it's still a great event. It's it's very big, um, and it's one of the bigger events in Boston.
0: HubSpot scales, company goes public. What was that like?
1: So going public and. Um, I mean, you can see the emotion if you go back to the old, uh, you know, uh, CNBC. The picture, yeah, that's floated on LinkedIn and stuff, but also just even the video on CNBC and stuff. Like, like, uh, by far, professionally, like, the most rewarding day of my life because you'd imagine being in a company for eight and a half years when, you know, when you first walk in, it's literally like you and a couple other people sitting around a table being like, okay, this thing's going to be big. And then to actually get to that point where, you know, you're looking down and you're 15 feet from Jim Cramer and you're, like, on the podium ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, it's, it's just one of those things where, like, literally you just never believe that that's actually going to happen. Like, in the back of your head, like, I'm hoping we can make this company successful. I'm hoping we can build it into something. But to actually get to that point was just um, was just super amazing. And, it, and really, you know, from a, from a career standpoint, I think just, like, an
0: awesome accomplishment. So what made Cyber Reason the right opportunity after HubSpot?
1: Yeah, so um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, um, but uh, I got introduced to to Cyber Reason through through a board member, and um, as I got to know the company through doing a little consulting for them, I was like, wow, this is a gigantic industry that is growing really fast, and I got to really, really know and to really like the team. Uh, and so it started to hit on a lot of the things that I was really interested in, uh, and it was an awesome experience. I mean, we've grown revenue a ton from when I joined. Um, you know, the company is much larger, doing really well. Um, huge. You know, I think the officially publicly reported numbers were 140% revenue growth last year. Uh, I'll just tell you that without giving out exact numbers, it is very high revenue growth this year as well. Uh, the company is doing awesome, and it's an amazing industry. And I, I feel really bad that I um, that unfortunately this other awesome opportunity came about and. Um, you know, I had to leave after only a couple of years, but um, but the company's doing great. And I, I, again, it's like um, you know, I think cybersecurity is another great cluster of technology, and some awesome cybersecurity companies that have been built, like Rapid Seven, some other bigger ones, RSA, uh, and then a new crop of them that are also popping up in Boston too. So it's it's a it's an awesome company, and was a great opportunity to be there for a couple of years and just learn a ton.
0: Now at Lola, um, what what is Lola?
1: Yeah, so Lola.com, we do corporate travel. So we're corporate travel software. We're both uh, an amazing software company, and we also actually book the travel. So um, I think all the headaches that you have around corporate travel, um, we make all of those go away. So it is by far the best, most sort of buttery smooth uh, corporate travel um, system that you can have, find today. I think um, people either do two things today. They either use consumer tools, which are – Easy to book, but the problem is if you have to make any changes, like if you ever book like a hotel room on Expedia and then you go to make some changes, that's like a that's a really really difficult process. Mm-hmm. Or they use things like uh, Concur, which is a seven billion dollar company that was acquired by SAP. Which again, it's like nineteen you know ninety six is calling and they want their software back, mm-hmm. and it's a really really bad traveler experience. So we give you consumer quality travel experience with twenty four seven uh support from our agents that you can reach out to at any time they'll solve any problem you have and we give the company basic ways to do some controls and visibility on what the what the travel spending is look like so it's sort of just the next generation of of kind of concur i think is the way to think about it um or the the clever way of thinking about it is if if kayak and hubspot had a baby it would be lola.com
0: and you actually have travel agents yourself so
1: yeah, we That's do. We do. So it's, so human-based support is, I mean, there's a bunch of AI that sort of powers a lot of the recommendations and some of the things within the platform. But we want 24-7, 365 if you have any issues with your business travel. Because business travel is more complex than consumer typically mm-hmm. because a lot of things go wrong. Meetings go late. You get delayed. Like you're trying to make a meeting at a specific time, all sorts of things. There's a lot of rebooking, cancellations, changes. Um, we make that as fast and easy as possible. And we do that actually with some humans. So, yeah.
0: Now you're relatively new in the CEO role, but like, what's been kind of the eye opening experiences into the new role? I, you know, it, it's
1: funny. It's, um, uh, so you know, Cyber Reason, where I spent two years doing uh running marketing there. Um, <clears throat> the CEO there, Lior Div, is, is fantastic, and um, I had a lot of conversations with him about, you know, what's it take to be a CEO, what are the big changes, like all, all sorts of things like that. And and um, one of the big things he told me was that. It's, it's funny, you think things roll downhill, but they actually roll uphill. Like eventually every problem becomes yours, right? Um, and so, you know, even day three in, it's like any problem, especially if it exists between a couple of different groups or things like that, like eventually it ends up in your desk. And so it's just, it, you end up being in some ways sort of this catch all for like all the problems in the business. Um, and I think that what you need to do is just make sure you're prioritizing and focusing on the ones that are the most important because you cannot possibly solve every single problem right and you also need to look for ways to not only solve the problems individually but solve the systemic problems like the things that are causing all those problems to end up on your desk right because it may be that there's relationships between people that are causing all of these problems you need to fix the relationships not the you know don't treat the symptom like treat, treat the cause
0: now what's i think exciting about the boston tech scene these days is the fact that you have um either repeat founders or repeat executives that have had yeah, it's Wait, that well, mafia effect that, fact that yeah, we're looking for. Yeah. People had yeah. success. So yeah. So you obviously have great success with HubSpot. Paul English has had multiple successes under his belt, including yeah. a massive, you know, kayak, 1.8 billion dollar acquisition. What's the plan for Lola? Like, is this another, you know, anchor company that you have this vision for? Like what's what's kind of the, the plan for
1: Yeah, I mean that's absolutely what we're trying to build. I think it's on us to actually deliver on that. But I mean, the travel industry is gigantic and business is a huge portion of the gigantic industry. So, and I it is and are really uh, completely underserved. Like I mean, consumers, I, yeah, options. yeah. Well, that's the thing. There's a lot of options consumer. And so, the, the focus on B2B, I think, is, is huge for us. Um, and so, yeah, we want to build a gigantic company here. We want people someday to have made a bunch of money here and become angel investors, uh, hopefully, go on and take some of that money to seed new companies, um, people that leave to start new companies. Um, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because while we are, it, it's actually like a perfect company for Boston because while we are B2B, we are building consumer quality product here. Uh, you know, the team on the product side that, that Paul has assembled. Uh, is amazing and they've done some really really good work. it's a delightful experience to use Lola.com and um, but again we have that b2b go to market motion which we're also very good at here in Boston on the sales and marketing side so um, so I think it, it's a it's a really good company for Boston it's sort of the the, the perfect company to be building now in a gigantic industry uh, you know with a lot of great Boston investors as well and so yeah I mean someday I hope we're you know 5000 employees and um, and there's you know all sorts of companies being spun out from us.
0: And speaking of travel, right, the, the, there's such a rich depth of companies and talent that have experience in the travel industry in Boston now.
1: Yeah, there's a ton. I mean, you know, you've got... Upper,
0: um, uh, ITA, TripAdvisor, like... Yeah, there's also... also um,
1: yeah, well, yeah, obviously, like, Kayak as well. Uh, there's Freebird, too, which Freebird, is another startup yeah. funded by, by General Catalyst. Yeah, no, there's a, bun- there's a bunch of travel industry-related stuff here, which is great. Uh, and there's a bunch of B2B companies here, too. So, like, we have... Um, you know, zero need to, like, you know, have a Silicon Valley office. We're not going to do that. Uh, we are 100% dedicated to Boston. Um, and then, you know, at some point, we'll probably go global and do some international stuff. But we're going we're to build a huge company right here. Uh,
0: so a couple of years ago, you did a podcast with Dave Gerhardt when he was doing tech in Boston. Yeah. And I listened to it just to kind of refresh myself on some of the things, uh, you know, going on from your HubSpot story. But uh, part of the discussion really leaned in on the Boston tech scene. And, um, you, know, you, you know, you had some great ideas on how it could, you know, you know, I mean, I think Boston has always thrived, but there's always room for improvement. And you brought up some really interesting points. But in the two years, from whatever you can remember, um, where do you think Boston Tech is these days?
1: Well, I think we've had some more success. Like, there's been a few more IPOs, right? You got EverQuote, and like, you know, there's some others, which Car-Gurus. is good. CarGurus, which is huge. Uh, another proof point, sort of, on the consumer side of things, which is great. Major acquisitions.
0: Yeah. PillPack.
1: PillPack, for sure. Simply safe,
0: getting the private equity investment at a billion-dollar valuation, like yeah. just. Crazy. Yeah,
1: absolutely. A, a ton of things, right? And so, um, so you know, again, more more success stories, which is awesome. Um, you know, the bigger companies have continued to grow, uh, you know, log me and made a huge acquisition, um, out of uh, GoToMeeting, go to meeting and, uh, and then HubSpot continues to grow as well, which is great. So I think you get, you know, some of the bigger companies becoming even bigger, which is good. You know, we had demand where there was purchased by Salesforce, which is, which is good, but it now becomes part of Salesforce as opposed to an independent company. Um, so I, I think we're like, we're making some progress. I think at the end of the day, um, and one of the things that I'm excited about, you know, again, having an operational role and being, being able to build a company is we just need more really big companies here. And if we solve that one problem, like a lot of these other things, will start to get even better. Again, it's a great place to build a company. Uh, it's much more affordable than Silicon Valley. It's much easier to retain talent here. The people are much more reasonable, Um, and so I think it's a really it's a great place to build a company. But if we could have more like really big pillar companies that will help us, and I think we're doing a good job. There's also you know a couple like emerging clusters like we are by far and away the leader in three D printing, right? With desktop metal, um, as well as you know Formlabs, just I think raised at a at a billion dollar valuation. Um, And you've got a bunch of other companies doing stuff in 3D printing, which is great. Um, You know, you talked about travel, which is kind of this great, you know, cluster as well. There's a bunch of marketing software companies here, too. There's some really, really, you know, great things starting to emerge. I just think we just we just need to continue to build more big companies.
0: And one of the things that you mentioned was, um, you know, Boston could, you know, if there was more of a, a, you know, active angel community, which uh, where do you think that stands as far as having uh, more angels involved in writing checks to companies?
1: I think, I think it's better. There's definitely more people becoming angels. Like I, I think I s- just saw that um, – I actually don't want to disclose it. But it, there was an, a, a senior executive at HubSpot that recently I think wrote their, wrote her first angel check into a company because mm. uh, it's a company I'm invested in and they're raising a subsequent round. And I saw in like an internal confidential update from them, they're like, oh, so-and-so. And I was like, oh, good for yes. her. like. Great. So I think I think is you know, again, as some more people have some more success, I think we are minting more angel investors, which is great. I think especially if your company has like an entrepreneurial sort of culture to it that um, that makes it makes it easier because those entrepreneurial people are more likely to write those checks. So I think we're doing okay. I think the thing we're not there yet on is like the super angels, the people that write the, you know, the six 000, figure to yeah, yeah, to even like half a million to like the really, really big ones. We need a few like like monster outcomes because like um You know, a $500 million outcome when the founder owns, you know, X single digit percentage or whatever, like, you know, you don't really make enough money to make, you know, 10 or 20 or 50 half million dollar investments, right? Right. So, um... You know, I think if we can have a couple of those really big monster outcomes, then that will start to change that a little bit. But it's very, very possible, especially with all the sort of the smaller, you know, new funds here too, the seed stage funds. You can raise an angel round actually pretty easily in Boston. Yeah. Uh, I think if you're if you're a credible entrepreneur, or even a first time entrepreneur.
0: And the, what I always uh, appreciated about HubSpot was the entrepreneurial spirit, even outside. So when people left the company and started their own, you would see most of the early investment was you know HubSpot right it was maybe you or was Brian Halligan right so you you know some companies get so like caught up in like you can't leave here but so you guys like yeah. celebrated uh, you know, people going off and starting their own companies and investing and back we, into
1: it. Yeah, we need to go further on all that stuff, and I think and I think even some of that kind of relates to non-competes, right? Yeah. So, so um, I think we need to go further on encouraging more people to leave companies and start new companies, and don't see that as a bad thing. Right. Um, I also think that you know we should we should completely get rid of and ban non-compete agreements. I think it's ridiculous that we haven't done that yet. Yep. I think that um, you know. California, they're unenforceable there, except in very, very, very narrow circumstances for very specific executives. Mm -hmm. Um, And the companies get all the protection that they need out of that. Um, You know, there's a lot of the big old school companies and business organizations in the state that are really, really holding us back on that. I know it looks like about that there'll be some minor reforms passed on non-compete agreements for like very very low wage employees and a couple you know a couple specific provisions, but it's not nearly enough. Like you want the software developer who's making a you know a good living to be able to leave and start a competitive company the next day, and companies should be competing not by you know um, gating up their talent or locking up their talent, but within their own walls. But they should be competing on having the best product and having the best consumer experience. Um, and we actually don't have non-compete agreements at Lola, uh, which is one of the things that like Paul is very, very much in favor of, um, you know, when he set the company up, it was one of like the positives for me in terms of joining that, you know, we just we just don't believe in them we think it's bad. It would probably be a little bit better for Lola if we had them, but we've decided not to. And we think employees should start to demand that the company that they work for ha- does not have a non-compete agreement. I think it's something people should start to think about when they look at where they work.
0: And I know like the NEBCA has been lobbying and trying hard to get them, you know, just deep, like they need to go away. It's just stifling innovation, the ability to create companies. They make no sense for the majority of the use cases that they're...
1: Yeah, Purpose and it, and food. it's funny because, like, you know, the people on the other side that are, are in favor of them sort of say, well, like, show me an example of someone that wasn't able to start a company, they got sued, that whatever. And it's like, the, it's not because it never goes to court. Mm-hmm. The problem is a company has 50 lawyers in their payroll. Yep. You as, you know, a mid-level engineer or product manager or marketer have zero lawyers in your payroll. Mm-hmm. And just the idea that they could demolish you with their 50 lawyers and give you a $200,000 legal bill to fight the thing means that you'll never go out and start the company or even think about starting it because you can't right um, and so it's one of those where like the argument against it I think just doesn't carry any weight the threat the fact that they exist and even the threat that you could be sued over it is more is more than enough to prevent people from doing all the entrepreneurial things that they
0: should be doing so when you are like making your own angel investments what's the criteria you look for
1: yeah so the number one thing is team. Um, because the business model is going to evolve and all sorts of things like that. I think the second thing is really the, the problem that they're solving. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is the amount of traction that they have. And that can be, have they built a beta product? Have they built a full working product? Do they have actually any traction with customers or usage or anything like that? Uh, but it's really those three things and, and frankly, in that order. Great.
0: Right. Well, Mike, thanks so much for your time. This is amazing. Wishing you all the success in your role as CEO now, and I'm hoping that you build the next anchor company here in Boston.
1: Yeah, we're looking forward to it. And uh, everybody listening, if they want to help us build that anchor company, uh, check out Lola.com. We'd love to help you with your corporate travel.
0: Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. Once again, thanks to our friends at Yesware for sponsoring this episode. Yesware is a Boston-based SaaS company backed by Google Ventures, Battery Ventures, and the Foundry Group. Their product is an inbox productivity platform that transforms the way you send emails and the good news is they're hiring. If you're a software engineer, product manager, or designer, join this winner of the Boston Globe Top Places to Work Award by going to yesware.com company for more info. Yesware, sell smarter.